welcome to Episode 3 of Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop. I'm your host, Lisa Chen, and this episode is about everything actual play. We're talking live-streamed games, the women who play in them, illustrate for them, produce them, and even research them. We'll chat with Hadil Almasari, aka Nejma, in Dungeons & Dragons Trapped in the Birdcage Twitch stream. Kayla Klein, the illustrator for Birdcage and much, much more. Alyssa Grant, the showrunner for Acquisitions Incorporated, the C-Team. And Hetty Rowan, the critter thesis critter, applying for her PhD studying the critical role fandom. Finally, we'll hear an audio story from Shauna Nakasone about how playing in live streams helped her find her identity and confidence as a transgender woman. But first, a reminder, if you enjoy Behold Her and want to make it even better, visit the submissions section of BeholdHerPodcast.com. Suggest guests who you'd love to hear interviewed on future episodes. Or if you're a woman in TRPG, tell us your story. Submit an audio essay. Topics for future episodes are listed on the submissions page. Hadil Almasari is a badass gaming geek, the talent manager for Seattle's Geek GirlCon, and one chill streamer playing some magical Minecraft on Twitch as Tweety Such. But you probably know her as Nejma, a wizard with some attitude and one of the disaster children of Holly Conrad's Planescape show. Trapped in the Birdcage airs live on the Dungeons & Dragons Twitch every Thursday at 5pm. Today, I'm super excited to be talking to Hadil Al-Masari. Thank you for coming to chat with me. Thank you for having me. I'm still like kind of blown away that anybody is excited to talk to me and or knows who I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get into Trapped in the Birdcage in a little bit, uh, but I was wondering just to start us off, if you could tell me a little bit about how you got into gaming as a hobby and how you fell into tabletop RPGs. Gosh, I feel like it's going to be one of those, I had started as a child. But I had always been really into video games. I moved around a lot. My parents were in the Navy. And so back forever ago, my I'm turning 29 tomorrow. So it just it feels like when I say 20 years ago, we would drive between the places we were moving or going. And I would either read fantasy books because you could get them at the gas station. So they probably were not like a pinnacle of literary works. Or I would play Game Boy and... That was pretty much the only thing I really liked to do when I was younger um, would just be read fantasy books and and play Pokemon or Tetris. Yeah, I've, I've always been really big into games. I feel like I've had every console that's come out probably at this point. And the whole tabletop thing is, is fairly new, but it essentially was... I like fantasy things, and I've always liked the concept of Dungeons & Dragons because I like to write, and I like fantasy. Um, I was the kid that wore a cloak in high school, so the idea of going on an adventure with your friends as like elves was super exciting to me. I actually hadn't played a legitimate Dungeons & Dragons game until the first episode of this. I had only played little one-off adventures at uh, conventions. The first one was at Geek Girl Con in Seattle, where I live, and they basically have little 30-minute sessions with a pre-made character and a set of tasks that you do 
to teach you how to collaborate with others and read a character sheet. But that's really my only experience playing. But I, I watched people playing Dungeons and Dragons on like Twitch. Like I, of course, I watch Dice Camera Action. I watch Critical Role. I also listened to the Adventure Zone. And there was this, I don't want to say it was like the first Dungeons and Dragons podcast but i believe it was called crit juice and i want to say like maybe three or four years ago i started listening to that i'm like oh dungeons and dragons is rad <laughs> so you're really new to D then i'm super new and i we're doing planescape so everything is very not different but the world is very different i have been told so yeah this is my first legitimate game of dungeons and dragons is it everything that you dreamed it would be, having watched other people play? Yes, everything I dreamed of and more. There's so there's so much more to it than I could have ever imagined. It's wonderful. How uh, did you end up at being involved with Trapped in the Birdcage then? I've been friends with Holly for a while, and I, she reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do a Dungeons & Dragons game with her. I didn't know at the time. I don't think I knew at the time that it was going to be actually broadcasts or anything like that. I think it was more of like, we should play Dungeons and Dragons together. And I feel like I've had that conversation with so many of my friends, like we should play D&D together. And then it just never happens. And then she said, like, this would be what I do with Dice Camera Action on the D&D channel. And I'll get back to you. And then I think... Uh, not too long after, she's like, yeah, we're doing it. And this is when we're going to do it. And I'm like, oh, boy. So that was basically it. She wanted people that hadn't played before. So me and Jimmy Wetzel are the people that haven't played before. And she already has a good rapport with Anna and, and Chad. And I know like Jimmy really wanted to play with Chad as well. So I think that's how the the group was formed. Well, then I guess this is certainly your first time streaming D&D. Is this your first time like streaming in general? Yes and no. I have streamed a few things in the past, but I've never stuck with it. I It was more of a lack of equipment. So I have like just today, I have this ancient PC sitting underneath my um, under my desk right now. And the past couple of weeks, it's been doing this thing where it doesn't recognize any of my USB devices. And today, it stopped recognizing my monitor. I'm like, oh, this oh, no. is really cool. I'm glad this happened <laughs> in the middle of me playing Destiny too. And I'm like, oh. wonderful. <laughs> um, but I I would love to get back into it. I've noticed that. Like the streaming community is a lot less scary than I thought it was going to be because I mean everybody hears horror stories, and I've definitely seen some people acting a fool on Twitch TV, but I would love to get into streaming. It just seems super fun and relaxed, and you don't have to edit anything afterwards. Yeah, I was actually going to ask whether there was any sort of anxiety or nerves doing your first campaign live in front of everybody. Yes, I am by nature a super anxious person anyway. The first episode we had like some technical difficulties. That's to be expected uh, when you have like one pot and there are five hands in it. That's what's going to happen. But even before I had that line from I think it's Carrie when they're like, they're all going to laugh at you. And I'm like, oh, they're going to laugh at me. Just because I know some people are super protective about their thing. I know this from working at Nintendo and working in games and just tech in general and being involved with games and comics in general, people just really like their stuff. And when you mess up their stuff, they don't like that at 
all. And I don't know all of the rules. I don't know all of the lore. And I was so worried that I was going to like say something stupid and people were going to immediately just be super mad and throw me into fantasy jail or something. Um, but has that been the case? Um, there have been one or two people who are really adamant about the rules, but the thing is, like, Holly has pretty much laid down the law where she has said, I'm the GM, I make the rules, and if I want to bend them, I will. There was somebody that pointed out that in the first episode, I used flaming hands against the steam method, and they're immune to fire, and... At the time, I didn't know that, and Holly didn't catch it, so it's not a big deal. Same with um, in this last episode. I used, I cast darkness, and then by nature of being a sun elf, I have dark vision at all times, but people were pretty adamant about the fact that dark vision doesn't work in magical darkness, but then there are some people arguing amongst themselves that if it's a racial trait, then it does work. It was just like a whole thing, and I'm like, oh no, I've made, I've created the anger. Oh no, I'm so sad. Uh Honestly, that sort of thing, at least in my experience, that happens at every table. And I feel like the thing is, it's meant to, if you're watching other people playing a game, it's more so meant to be entertaining as opposed to being about the rules. Because if the rules were important, you would be playing your own game at that moment and not watching other people play. Mm -hmm. It's... It's more to be entertaining than it is to hold two people who have played Dungeons and Dragons twice to every role for this this game that's, I want to say, over 30 years old. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It just w- wouldn't be super fun to just watch people then stop the flow of the game and the story. Yeah. To, to do a bit like a big rules explanation. But actually, I'm realizing maybe we should take a step back. And for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what Trapped in the bird cage is could you introduce them to it trapped in the bird cage is a DD twitch stream that is on the official DD twitch channel on thursdays from five to seven and it's me playing a sun elf named nejma chad quant playing a warforged rogue named reader anna prosser robinson playing a human rogue named wilhelmina and Jimmy Wetzel playing a human bard named Saturn. And our dungeon master is Holly Conrad, who is also Strix on Dice Cabinet Action. And she does all sorts of really fantastic stuff on the internet. But it is Planescape, so it takes place in Sigil, which I'm not entirely familiar with everything that Sigil has to offer. But apparently it's like a very dark place with lots of evil afoot. But essentially, if you watched the show, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, if you put elf ears on a bunch of the people there and cloaks, it's the same. <laughs> That's how it's been feeling lately. Tell me about your tell me about your son elf. My son elf, Nejma, believes the rules don't apply to her. So the great thing about Nejma is she's like super confident in her abilities. Her ego is the size of the world. So she is the exact I want to say exact opposite of myself, but I've had friends point out, they're like, oh, she's like you. And I'm like, no, please, <laughs> please be gentle. <laughs> it feels bad. But essentially, she's the type of person who thinks she is the best magician, the best wizard um, that has ever lived, but she's not that good. She's kind of a disaster caster where if she casts any sort of magic spell, it's maybe not the right time to do it and it catches on fire and she doesn't really think before casting any spells. She's maybe not the type of person that should have learned magic and 
I don't know if it's meant to be revealed yet or not. I wouldn't consider it a spoiler. It's my character. I'll do what I want with her. <laughs> but it's it's probably will be revealed later or understood that she probably learned magic illegally or didn't learn it at a a school or a proper venue because wizards have to learn magic by reading books and scrolls and she did not learn magic that way she did not go to wizard college so she she learned some some spells in a way she should not have learned um people do ask me about like the circus tent incident on twitter every once in a while why there was a circus tent on fire in the first episode and it is that nejma worked in this big circus, uh, kind of a riff on Ringling Brothers. It's Sunspire and Sons um, traveling uh, fantastical circus. And she may or may not have been sold to the circus as a way for her parents to just get rid of this horrible child. Where did you find the inspiration for Nejma? I don't know. So like the the day before this, I was like, I don't have a backstory for my character. I really need to find a backstory for my character. And my, my thing about the circus is I've always been like a really independent person. So when I moved out to Seattle, my mom would tell people that I ran off and joined the circus. And I was like, I'll just go with that. She's she's in the circus. But I, I wanted I wanted it to be fun. But I always think that when people play fantasy games and um do any sort of character creation, whether it be Skyrim or The Sims, what 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 have you, I feel like they kind of want to make a more powerful version of themselves. And I've definitely done that. I am like a lifelong player of World of Warcraft and I'm like, I'm fantastic. I want to be a wonderful magic person. But I kind of wanted it to be maybe this person isn't bad and you know like their moral compass is not so great but i wanted them to maybe see magic as a as a great thing that they wanted to learn and the only way they could learn it is maybe in a not so great way but i i used like the riff on the circus to like figure out the rest it just came to me i'm like this will have to do ah that's really cool i mean when inspiration strikes take it yeah, for sure. Especially, I feel like anytime you're making another person out of nothing, I, I will take anything because figuring out who I am as a person is hard enough. Figuring out somebody else is just twice as bad. Are there any loose ends to Nejma's backstory or anything you've kind of left up to Holly that you're hoping she might bring up and surprise you with? Holly has been trained by like a golden god of a dm chris so that leaves me both like super excited and also terrified (laughs) of what's gonna happen to my poor character but i'd like to see how our characters are fleshing themselves out with each episode we didn't really consult each other about what our characters would be which is why we have two rogues and a bard and we don't really know anything about each other and we didn't really take the opportunity that was given to us and the first episode to get to know each other but i think as each episode progresses we'll get to learn a little bit more about what makes these characters tick this past episode i have felt that things have just been going crazy uh somebody got set on fire in a rug and it was just it was just bananas but i think reader is the the giant babysitter of all of these horrible children and i'm like gonna try and take chad's lead with reader to like solve the mystery that we're supposed to be solving but it is kind of nice to have somebody not just somebody but two people in your party that could 
be considered foils to wanting to get to the bottom of the task at hand, so to speak. It's very interesting not knowing anything about the other characters and then trying to all work together for this common mission we're supposed to be on. And it's kind of cool seeing that unfold on stream because I know Critical Role, they they had that long history of their campaign before they started. And then I believe before the second campaign, they did a few like off stream introductory things for their characters. Yeah. So aside from Trapped in the Birdcage recently, you also do another number of other like really amazing things as a professional nerd, uh, including helping to make Geek Girl Con happen. Can you tell me a little bit about what Geek Girl Con is and your role in it? Oh, yeah. So Geek Girl Con is great. Just FYI, if you're in Seattle, October 27th and 28th, I believe. It's like the last weekend of October. I'm really bad with dates. It is a convention in Seattle that is basically a celebration of women in STEM and nerd culture and people always ask like without fail if they are like non-gender conforming or like they don't consider themselves women or if they are men if they're allowed to come absolutely it's just a celebration it's not an exclusory event you absolutely can come it's a fantastic convention we have workshops every year we have a diy science zone where you get to make fun um, cool experiments there's tons of content like panels and talks that they do i think our artist alley and expo hall is just one of the best we have some fantastic artists that come every year and a lot of really cool vendors like we the great thing about being like a femme and women charged convention is we have like a lot of nerdy themed cosmetics and makeup Mm. and uh, fashion which i really like that vend with us and we have different networking things that you can do if you want to learn to code and all sorts of really cool stuff. I love it. I am the talent manager, so I help book guests for our convention. Last year, we had a bunch of really fantastic voice actresses. We had Kimberly Brooks from Voltron. We had Erica Luttrell from Steven Universe. We had Lucy Pohl from Overwatch. And I forget her last name, but I know her first name is Frida and she's from Mass Effect. And it was really, really such a fantastic time. Um, So what are some of the other things that you do in the, the gaming and geek realm? I used to cosplay a lot when I lived in I moved up here from Florida and Florida has like one big convention every year at Megacon in Orlando. And I started going to Megacon when I was 13 and have been, I cosplayed every year at Megacon up until I moved. And then I haven't really cosplayed much since I moved, but I do enjoy cosplay. I love video games. I was actually playing Destiny 2 before um, our little interview and then my monitor did a weird thing. I'm like, all right, well, somebody wants to be sent to Shady Pines and it's this computer. And right now I'm like obsessed with esports. By nature of living in Seattle, I get to go to the Dota International every year and I've gone every year since I've been up here. So, and this, this year will be my fourth year, I think. And then there is the, I want to say the the Halo final is going to be in April. And I've been watching Overwatch League religiously, and I want to start an esports podcast. Cool. Do it. <laughs> I'm going to. I love esports. So it's like, it's like being the sports friend, but not having to know any of the rules. I already know all the rules because I play those games. <laughs> 
Uh, So you're involved in so many ways. Has it ever felt challenging to you being a woman in this hobby? Luckily, my introduction to tabletop itself was like a very gentle and kind introduction. And I'm kind of spoiled in the way like my day job right now. um, I work at a tech company because I live in Seattle. I sit next to somebody. His name is Christian. And he has like this enormous board game collection. He actually has like a YouTube channel talking about inclusivity in board games and like the best board game for your money. It's called Take Your Chance. It's great. Like he's so funny. And one of our, I don't know his exact role. I just know that he's a man of many talents, I'm sure. But he also hosted a game night recently like where i work everyone seems to really love tabletop games we have in the lunchroom there's like a little stack of games that you can play and um so my introduction to tabletop and board games was like a very nice friendly one my video game one not so much my first introduction into the world of online gaming was i had made i was still in high school at the time i made a video for my speech class like a like english essentially basically a rundown of a hobby that someone might not know about. That was essentially the assignment. And I did like a little video on World of Warcraft and how to play. And I did little segments that I talked about was that World of Warcraft is always updated. And they like I showed them how to find the patch notes to find out what was new. And I was like, I don't like this particular thing, but I like this feature. And this is like over 10 years ago. And somebody found the video on YouTube because YouTube was super new at the time. So there wasn't a ton of content. And posted it to 4chan Uh and that's not a great way to be introduced to the online video game community so that wasn't great that eventually died down Mm -hmm. but i was pretty soured on video games as a whole and i don't think i played video games for a while after that i was like i will never play world of warcraft ever again i still play now so it's whatever and i've had some like really interesting experiences when the first destiny launched i pre-ordered the playstation that came with it, the white one, went to go pick it up. I was the only woman in line, of course, and no less than like three people asked me if it was for my boyfriend. I'm like, I don't have one of those. Also, no, it's for me. I bought it with my money. When Splatoon came out, I went to go pick it up on my way to work and I'm standing in line to go get it because, you know, it's a release. And there was a guy behind me who talked down to me the entire time about like any game i didn't want to have a conversation at all just talking down to me and i found out that he was there to buy the single ness amiibo that that gamestop was getting in rural florida so by nature of being in front of him in line i bought it for myself and immediately opened the package so it wasn't worth nothing that was probably the meanest thing i've ever done in my life so now i have this ness amiibo oh my god my Uh, face right now (laughs) i tell people that story and they're like wow that's a really savage i'm like i know it's the meanest thing i've ever done in my entire life i robbed a grown man out of the opportunity of getting a toy it was amazing. Oh my gosh, you slay me. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is mine now. And of course, like, you spent all this time telling me about, like, the amiibo market and, like, how you're a big time collector and how this Ness amiibo is going to get you, like, $100. Now it's not worth anything and the packaging's in trash. What are you going to do about it? Oh my God, truly savage. I kind of love that, though. I 
like if I had any sort of like filming or editing abilities, I would love to do a dramatic reenactment of that moment. And the minute I put the package in the trash, it just like explodes in flames because that's how it felt <laughs> inside my heart. Um, oh my gosh. What? How did he react? He was furious, which was great because I just got in my car and drove away. So I didn't care. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't stop me. I'm a grown woman. <laughs> I'm literally in my t- 20s and I bought a toy to spite a grown man. It was amazing. Uh, hit him where it hurts. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be married with that amiibo now. That belongs to me. Oh, I'm sorry that you had those experiences, but I'm really glad that you persisted. Do you have any advice or tips for women who are interested in getting into gaming or tabletop RPGs who feel discouraged for one reason or another? Been there. So it's not like your feelings are invalid. I've definitely had moments where I'm like, oh, like, I don't know how to play this game. Like, I'm not very good. I shouldn't play and i feel like as somebody who plays overwatch and does like competitive stuff i'll be like well this is cancer i'm like it's a video game so please calm down but that's the thing at the end of the day it's just a game and i know as somebody whose entire life revolves around games and games are really important to me i still know that they're just games and there's no game jail that they can send you to. The gaming police aren't going to come and get you if you forget a rule or if you don't know every single thing that is to be known. And if I could give like one piece of advice of all of that isn't good enough, I will give a piece of advice that somebody gave to me at a conference. It was another like video games professional. I want to say it was at E3. I was just having like a really really off day and had gotten like a bunch of information wrong about my own game. And this person was like, well, I mean, there's always tomorrow. You know, like everybody has a first day at doing something. So if you get it wrong, you just try again tomorrow. Tomorrow's a brand new day. Not a big deal. But yeah, just just do it and find other people that you can do it with. I think that will also really help like people that, you know, I know that can be the hardest part is kind of trying to coordinate people to do things. But if If you really want to do something, you can be the person to take charge and be like, we're doing this on this night at this time. If you don't show up, I'm going to come to your house and get you. Like, (laughs) it has to be like that. But there's also lots of groups out there. I've seen some for Meetup. The Seattle area has two board game cafes where you can go in and there will be people who have like a little looking for group sign on their table and just be like, hey, can I play games with you guys? I feel like gamers by nature are just like socially anxious. But the people sitting down are probably also really anxious. So just go with it. and It'll be fine. That's great advice. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you wanted to talk about? Well, I feel like you already know way too much about me. I will share a fun story, though, if people are like ever embarrassed about making a mistake. Because my first day at Nintendo, one, I went into the wrong building. So there's that. And a ton of people watched me do it. But I also walked right into a glass door thinking that it was open and embarrassed myself in front of, I want to say, like, it wasn't Reggie Fizame, so there was there's that. But it was, like, the director of finance watched me walk right into that guy, just full bore, right into it like a bird. So, can't get worse than that. That's me in a nutshell. I love the games so much. 
And now I have to start this esports podcast because I said it. This is going to be posted on the internet. So I think that makes it long. Yeah, people are going to be anticipating it. How do you, if people want to find you and keep up with what you're doing, talk to you on the interwebs, how can they do so? I'm mostly on Twitter, even though I don't have Twitter on my phone. I'm still on it way too much. And my Twitter handle is TweetySuch, which is T-W-I-T-T-Y-S-U-C-H. And it's pretty much like the same on Instagram. I don't ever use Facebook because that's a bad place. And then on Thursdays, I am doing the Dungeons and the Dragons on the official D&D channel. I also have a website that I am working on redoing right now, which is uh, just TweetySuch.com. And that's it. If you if you ever see me playing Overwatch, please send me a screen cap, especially if you kill me, because I've had two people do this and it is so hilarious to me. Thank you so much again for just chatting with me for Behold Her and then also for sharing your first D&D campaign with the world. That's really cool. Oh, well, you're you're welcome. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm having a good time and I hope that everyone else is too. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This is really fun. Kayla Klein paints gorgeous Dungeons and Dragons inspired illustrations. She's the artist behind Trapped in the Birdcage, Behold Her podcast, and two upcoming comic books about strips. She also plays Spore, a sassy robot in The Rise of the Dark Side, a Star Wars D20 livestream, which airs on the Encounter Roleplay Twitch, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific. So I am here with Kayla Klein, uh, who, among many other amazing things, illustrated the graphics for Beholder. Hi, Kayla! Hi! I first discovered you and your art during hashtag December when you were doing so much D&D art. Can you tell me a little bit about how you discovered Dungeons and Dragons um, and actual play streams and then how that intersects with the amazing art that you do? I My first experience with Dungeons and Dragons didn't really come until college because prior to that, no one would play with me. Like, <laughs> I was interested in it and the video games and the lore and stuff, but I didn't really find anyone to play with until I came home from college for a break and my friend was like, hey, do you want to play Pathfinder? And I was like, okay, sure. And it was just like a silly supernatural TV show one-off. And I was kind of like hooked from there. And then I was able to kind of dive into the the meat of it after that point. Uh, do you remember your first character? I don't remember that character. I remember my first like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons character. And I played a rogue because I was like, that sounds fun. And now I really don't touch that type of class anymore. But I played a tiefling rogue named Tarek Targana and he was just like really emotional and sad and angsty and he had his horns cut off like Hellboy because I'm super into Hellboy and I had a blast it was a lot of fun that was like the first time and that was not that long ago it was it was a couple years ago if I'm remembering correctly you're actually now a dungeon yes yeah well. yeah um the the first fifth edition game I played was DM'd by my boyfriend and now I DM for him and a couple friends and my brother, and we do that every weekend. And I find that really fun. I know it's just, it's a whole different experience. I kind of plan out a story and then they help me tell it. So coming from that side, it's it's a lot of fun. How would you describe your Dungeon Master style? 
I just like to make stuff up. I, I think I, I remember there was an interview with Chris Perkins where he talked about that. The best DMing you can do comes from the least amount of preparation. And I agree with that. I go into it. I try to go into it like I have this basic idea of where they could be. So I'm prepared to have them do a thing. But as far as anything else, they can they can do it. Like I gave them the ability to planeswalk and they go to Sigil a lot. So that's a lot of fun. I get to just, like one session recently, they were like, we're going to Sigil. I know we're in Chult, but F it. And they went to Sigil and I just ran them through just this little quest from Planescape Torment because I was like, whatever. And it was really fun. They were, they had a lot of fun with it. So that's the D&D side. Uh, you've actually been illustrating, in particular illustrating comic books. Uh, for a while now. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into that hobby? Yeah, actually, I went to college for that. I went to college for illustration and then about, I don't know, like a year or two into it, one of the professors was like, I want to teach comics. And I was able to take classes specifically with this published graphic novelist. So I took a whole bunch of comics classes and really tried to like make that my concentration. And I did stuff for children's books and stuff like that as well. I just have always really loved being able to tell a story through images. Yeah, and then recently been able to kind of do that with D&D with working on the Strix comics. So it's something that's kind of carried throughout my life. In high school even, I did a lot of silly little comics and things like that. So it's it's been a lifelong endeavor. Can you tell me a little bit about your creative process? Sort of starting from the seed of maybe you're watching dice camera action and something happens. What inspires you? And then what are the steps after that? I don't want to say anything spoiler for <laughs> dice camera action, but if, if anything kind of strikes me, I kind of picture an idea in my head and then sometimes I'll look up some pose reference or I'll just blindly dive into it with some sketches. And literally that's about all I do. I have a pretty, I guess I have a pretty good imagination. I don't have to use a lot of reference a lot of the time, but that's about it. It's, it's, I just try to have fun with it. I guess if we don't want to get too spoilery, what about uh, so like Holly Conrad comes to you and says, Kayla, I want you to draw all the art for Trapped in the Birdcage. Yes. Uh, how do you even get started with that? Oh, I could tell you a little bit about how that went. That's basically how it was. And I was like, what? Yes. Um, <laughs> basically, I, Holly kind of gave me, we started out with the, the headshots and it was, a, it was a whole range of what I was provided. Chad provided just a little backstory for Reader and was like, I like Guillermo del Toro. Can you kind of get that vibe? And I was like, oh, hell yeah, I can. And Hadil had a Pinterest board for Nejma, and that was it. And I was like, actually, this is, this is great. Like, it was perfect. And Jimmy actually had his character, Saturn, he had all planned out. Um, he had a friend who did a couple sketches, so that was pretty straightforward. I tried to throw in a little bit of my own flavor into it. And then Anna had, she had beautifully written out exactly how she wanted um, Will to kind of appear and her personality and everything like that. So that was kind of like a, a whole range of different levels of detail given to me. Um, and that's, that's my experience so far with doing D&D art for people. I've had a lot of people approach me with wanting their characters illustrated or things for campaigns and it's, it's all been all over the board like that. I find that if you give me more freedom I produce better things but I feel like that's that's a lot with 
every, anyone really. If you're allowed the ability to be creative, it will be. Speaking of your D&D art, uh, you're working on a number of comic books right now. Yes. Uh, two Strix comics. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about them? <laughs> I've drawn so many pictures of Strix. Oh, man. <laughs> Um, I always joke with my boyfriend, I'm like, people sometimes come, I've had a couple people come to me like, hey, I'm drawing this Strix thing, what's your opinion? I'm like, of course you're coming to me, that's all I draw now. (laughs) (laughs) You're the Strix expert. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, move over, Holly, it's me now. Um, Yeah, I've I've been enjoying them a lot. They're two totally different tones, I guess. Um, Holly wrote a story that... I haven't received all of it yet, but from what I have, it's very more adventurous, more epic. Not very hopeful because it is Strix and she's panicking the whole time. But in a way it is, in the way it progresses. And then TK joins the fray on Twitter, wrote the other one, and they made theirs just abysmal. (laughs) It's so sad. On brand. Yeah, on brand. And so it's just been two different... And I'm inking them at the exact same time. And so I'm going back and forth. So not only are they two different tones, it's two different times in Strix's life. So we have, I think like the one that Holly wrote, she's in Sigil and she leaves Sigil and meets Baba Yaga. So that's where that one's set. And then the one TK wrote is set when Strix is in Barovia and everyone's dead. So (laughs) it's just two totally different things. It's a lot of fun. Do you find as you're jumping between both of the comic strips, is your illustration style different because of the different tones? It isn't, but I do find that the big struggle that I have and that I've heard a lot of people have with comics is remaining consistent. I haven't had any trouble with these because I'm drawing the exact same person, Um, just different outfits. But keeping the face consistent is is always a struggle. But other than that, I haven't had any trouble with it. It's just, I'll ink one thing, I'll get kind of sick of working on it, bounce to the other one. So it's been, it's been a time. Something actually that our friend Maz has pointed out is that, so you are drawing the same person or tiefling over and over and over again, uh, but you manage to get so much expression, which is really cool because Strix has no pupils. Oh my gosh. And there's so much expression in the eyes. How do you do that? Yeah, that's, I had to figure it out because it was like, this is sink or swim, buddy. I didn't know what else to do. Basically, I just had to work with the features in her face that were not her eyes. So a lot of times when I have her looking and she's terrified, normally I feel like when you have pupils, you'll just make them small to emphasize her eyes being very big. But I'll just put like bags under and around her eyes and lines around the frown in her face. So I just emphasize everything else in her face to make up for the fact that she doesn't have expressive pupils. And it's actually taught me quite a lot by doing that. So that's good. As the number one Strix visual expert, (laughs) uh, what advice do you have uh, for other people drawing Strix fan art? Like little details that maybe you notice that make something not just your everyday trash witch, but Strix. But one thing that I kept consistent in both the designs that I did was messy hair and torn clothes. When I draw her not in comic form, I put a lot of detail into the accessories that she's carrying, but I'm not going to draw those 50 to 100 times and remember exactly what they looked like. 
So I kind of simplified it down for that. But just as long as her clothes are torn and her hair is messy, I feel like those are the two key things that I kept a lot of detail in throughout both the things that I'm drawing. And it makes her look like a trash witch. So (laughs) just a hot mess. Recently, you've actually been delving into actual plays yourself, playing SP0R3, or Spore, on Encounter Roleplay's Star Wars-themed show. What has that experience been like? That has been not at all what I expected. And I don't think I've talked to anybody about it yet, really, other than it was fun. Like, I, I guess I haven't talked in depth about it, but I expected to be way more stressed out by it than I am, which was surprising for me. I don't know how the first experience was for you, but like I was I was kind of stressed going into it. But then it's literally as soon as you start playing, it's not even a thing anymore. Like it's so much fun. Yeah, like it's just a game. Yeah. Admittedly, I don't know anything about Star Wars, so I'm just like, I'm here. I'm a robot. Thanks, guys. But like, it's just, it's so much fun, and it feels like just hanging out with friends. And I try to be attentive to the chat, but that's the only thing that kind of stresses me out a little bit because I'm like, what is everybody saying? But if so, I I try to ignore it a little bit. But yeah, not what I expected. I thought I was gonna be way more stressed out than I was. Oh, well, I'm glad that you're not. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I could deal with three hours of stress once a week. For those who haven't watched Rise of the Dark Side, can you tell me a little bit about the show and about Spore and the other characters? I will try because I don't know anything about Star Wars, but it's Star Wars and all of the other characters are children, which I would have been a child too if I would have played by the rules and played not a droid, but I insisted on being a droid, which is what I am. And... There's going to be time skips and stuff, but they start out as young Jedis in training. And there's some spooky stuff going on with some evil guy. You just described every D&D game, Kayla. I know. I'm so sorry. I was about to say this probably would be more compelling if I knew anything about Star Wars and could tell you actually what's happening. But I'm just along for the ride and I'm having a good time. Well, I'm going to hype your show for you. Thank you. I think it's really funny that they're all children except for Spore, because they are ridiculous little punks oh that God. need to be reined in, and there will be time jumps if they survive. Yes. Oh, gosh. Yeah, there was there was a, like this clutch move in the last game. I, I'm a tech specialist. I don't know if anybody listening to this has played the D20 Star Wars one, but you just put points into skills, and tech specialist allows you to specialize in ones. I have plus 10 to whatever I roll on treat injury, and I rolled a 20. So it was like a 30 to treat injury. I was like, yes, I saved the child. So that's pretty much the, I, I just keep them alive and complain a lot. I think with a 30, you cure like the whole city. Right. That's what I thought. But he was like, oh, her bones are still broken. I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. that was a 30. Excuse you. Like, I don't <laughs> think so. But whatever. It's fine. DM's rules. Are there any secrets in Spore's uh, backstory or personality that are yet to be revealed? Yes. He has more to do with the plot than I think we've found out yet. <gasps> I guess it was kind of hinted because in, I think even in the first session, we found a droid that looked just like him. So that was kind of suspicious, but we did a little kind of prequel text RP before the game started where he kind of set me up, the DM Strider did, for 
how I am woven into the overall plot and possibly some evilness and all this stuff, so. That's so exciting. I thought the robot just looked like you because he didn't want to describe a different robot. <laughs> that would be so good if it was... No, there is a reason. And it was it was good. I, I really do love my character a lot, and I'm glad. It seems like people like him too, which I'm excited about. I just wanted to be sassy, real sassy, and it's working out for me. Sassy bot. Yes. What has your experience as a woman playing D&D and other tabletop games been, either as Spore or earlier? I have not had any sort of negative experience, and I feel like I'm very fortunate for that. I know a lot of friends that I've talked to and people that I've met have kind of had a lot of negative experiences being a woman in gaming, but I've never, I've never had people approach me in a negative way or in a judgmental way, if that makes sense. So I feel like I've been fortunate in that, but I am also very new to kind of being not really a face in the community, but people knowing that I exist in the community. <laughs> so moving forward, I'm a little cautious about it and a little worried, but so far, nothing nothing bad. Everyone's been very kind and open, and I, I, have never gotten, I haven't gotten any sort of like terrible comments or anything to make me feel bad about myself. So it's been surprising, I guess, because when you think about things on the internet, communities on the internet, there's always a lot of judgment. And I don't I don't find that in the D&D community. And maybe that's just the way it is, which would be great. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly hope that continues to be your experience. People talk about how the D&D community is changing. So maybe this is a stage where people like yourself or myself, or if we're like nervous, but everything's great. It's kind of like a transitional period. Yeah, I, I hope so. I really do. Like I, the Star Wars game is the first time I've ever shown my face, and I was really scared about that. Actually, I don't know, just something about that and people judging you, that whole fear. But I didn't, I didn't have any of that. There was no comment that I saw on my appearance or anything negative like that. So, and I was surprised because when I used to just stream art on Twitch before I was even into D and D, and my friend would sometimes come on and she would get nasty comments and stuff, but, but in this, not at all, which is great. That sucks that it, you're just doing an art stream and people come in and say mean things. Oh yeah. Like, like the most zen of streams. Oh, uh, and before that I've like, I played league of legends with my friend and she would do face cam and people would just come in and just pop in out of nowhere and just be awful. And it's, it, that's what's scary to me, I guess, about the live play streams. But I haven't had any negative experiences so so far. <laughs> I don't want to jinx yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I hope no one does anything awful. I will bite them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully, people who have anxiety about that realize, from my experience, that you'll be fine. Nobody will be. It's fine. And if anybody is mean, I feel like people come out of the woodwork and will defend you. Like the D and D community is pretty kind in my experience. I think so. I also think with D&D, you're streaming with a group of at least, gosh, at least three or four other people. Yeah. So if someone comes on and says something mean about you, there's like a whole gang of people ready to get 
to get your back. Yeah, exactly. So it's not just you. You have, you're playing with friends. That's sincerely what it is. As we uh, wind down, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? Upcoming projects? Yeah, I'm doing several secret projects. Um, Other than that, literally, I just draw Strix. I get off of work and I come home and I'm like, I guess I'm drawing Strix tonight. So my goal is to have those comics done hopefully this year later this year um for sure the tk one's going to be done and then the holly one will be done as you know as long as i get all the script and everything so that's the goal for this year um other than that nothing that i can openly discuss so sorry (laughs) any secrets about those comics that you're willing to spill um TK's is going to emotionally devastate you. Sorry, not sorry. And Holly's, I don't know the whole story on that yet, so I can't spoil too much on it, but it's they're both going to be great. How can people learn more about you and your art uh, or possibly support your art if they'd like to do that? Well, I, <laughs> I have a website, which is just myname.com. So Kayla Klein, K-A-Y-L-A-C-L-I-N-E.com. It's also my Patreon. I have a Patreon, which is the only place to get any prints or any stickers or anything like that. I send those out monthly if you're the right tier. And that's just patreon.com slash my name. And I also have a Kofi, coffee, however you say it, and everything. And all those are linked on my Twitter. And my Twitter username is K-A-Y-N-C-L-I. And I post a lot of art and talk about D&D and stuff. Alyssa Grant has been producing games since 2014, working as a producer at companies like Cricket Moon Media, Wizards of the Coast, Dungeons & Dragons, and now Penny Arcade. Those of you who watch the C-Team perhaps hail her as the Shadow Counselor. Alyssa runs Acquisitions Incorporated's C-Team, which airs on the Penny Arcade Twitch Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific. Welcome, Shadow Counselor Alyssa Grant. Thank you for your esteemed presence here on the Beholder Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. You've worked as a game producer for the past five years or so. Um, How and when did you decide that this was the path for you? Games have always been a part of my life. It's always been a passion, but I never really thought that I would just say, you know, I'm going to get into the games industry or games adjacent industry. That just kind of fell into my lap just because of contacts that I knew and luckily people setting me up to get into something that I'm interested in. So I do think I was quite lucky there. Um, What about tabletop RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons? Had you played those earlier in life or did they make you play when you were at Wizards of the Coast? Mm Um, Yeah, so I started playing when I was, I think, 17, and I started playing, I think, first edition, and then I moved to 3.5, and and I had a Pathfinder stint, and and now I'm 5e, and so I've... I've been playing for quite a while now, and some of my favorite memories have come from playing D&D. And so when I switched over onto the D&D team, obviously there's a lot I, I wasn't quite familiar with, um, with some of the heavier lore. And so I learned a lot while I was there, and we also did play a lot. I think when I was at Watsi, I played, I think I was in, I don't know, four games a week at that point, and that was at Watsi and outside of Watsi. So it's TRPG... Um, just role-playing in general has been a, a pretty big part of my life. 
that's largely why I am at Penny Arcade as well, is because of my experience with TRPGs. Well, that's, so that's uh, an intense amount of role-playing. It sounds like the dream. <laughs> do you remember your first character or your first favorite character? I do. My first character was a tiefling rogue, and her name was Maruk. And um, I created this this huge backstory that almost never came up. We, we played for a year, but my DM kind of always knew about it and would sprinkle little bits and pieces of her into it. And a lot of my characters are kind of based off of her, but they all have slightly different personality traits. Obviously, with my longer games, with the shorter one-offs, I'll do something silly or crazy that doesn't really connect with Maruk. But yeah, she's always been kind of near and dear to me, and I still have her character sheet. <laughs> and I'll pull it up every once in a while and look at it. How would you describe your play style? So I, I definitely like role-playing much more than um, getting into the numbers uh, and heavy combat. I, I think that those big role-playing moments really add to the relationships that you have at the table, and they also allow for you to figure out a lot more about yourself as well. So I think that the joy that I have comes from the role-playing. That being said, I think combat is still a lot of fun, and you know, getting more into the numbers can be fun, but I just don't think it's necessarily the point of it for me. Tell me a little bit then about how you ended up at Penny Arcade and how you got involved with the C team. After I left Watsi, I was approached by my boss now, Jeff Callis, and he was the Acquisitions Incorporated producer at the time. And he asked me to come up with this project. And it, it was just like a, a large pitch of a, of a future project that is only starting to come into fruition now. I, I built it out and I presented it to the Penny Arcade team. And they liked what they saw and they, they decided to bring me on. And the original thought was that I would come on and I would help with Acking where I can. And I, I would work on different projects where I could um, as a project manager. But it's kind of organically transitioned into working on largely Acquisitions Incorporated with some of the, the other projects on the side. And so C-Team was already a concept by the time that I joined, but nothing had been created yet. The actual specific logistics hadn't been scoped out yet. And so that was kind of my job. And we didn't realize how much it would grow until we started. It was all just very high in the sky. This seems like a really neat idea. Here's the stream idea. And it, it could be part of Acquisitions Incorporated. So how much of the concept did they have in place when you arrived? And how much of the C-team that we know now was sort of shaped after you got your hands on it? The overall concept of, you know, let's let's bring in friends to sit at a table and play D&D that's based around Ack Inc. I think that was the general concept and that was already in place by the time I got there. And we had had a partnership with Hyper RPG to make it happen. And, you know, we were still kind of learning the ropes of having a studio and doing a lot of the, the video content. And we have uh, Joshua Price in-house um, and he's a Penny Arcade employee and he does all of the, the studio management. He's our studio producer. And um, at that time, we were having a partnership with HyperRPG to kind of figure all of that out. But since then, it's grown into something that is just within Penny Arcade. Josh is the person who runs it now. The lore itself has kind of expanded into uh, a much deeper story. And Jerry and Eric plan every week. 
and there are lots of fan theories. Our players are super into it. And so I would say that it has definitely grown from the original concept and has maintained the original voice to an extent, but it has become something much larger than we had ever anticipated. And so we've learned a lot along the way with both the technical side of things and with um, the role-playing side of things. And uh, in a way, it's kind of become its own little family. So what exactly does it mean to be the showrunner, the shadow counselor? What sort of things go on behind the scenes, sort of from like like a day-to-day perspective? Or are there like big challenges that you guys face that we as viewers just have no idea. A lot of my job comes with just coordinating behind the scenes, making sure that when there are changes, when we have sponsors, when we have anything that needs to be created, I am that middleman. So I go to the design team, the designers make something absolutely spectacular. I hand it over to our studio producer, Josh, who places it in and then coordinate with Patrick, who does all of our marketing. Just generally, I have the large picture of what the C team is. A lot of my job mainly happened on the C team during the planning phase before the season started. And then it's just kind of on rails from there. So we post our weekly question. We have a back end where um, that, that our engineer has built out where I can basically manage a lot of the stuff that you see on screen. So if you see the sub ticker, we, we change that between having um, the cauldron and having uh, all of our subs names running through. And then we had a lot of brainstorming sessions when we were building out season two that just involved a lot of different people. And that was when we kind of were figuring out what that back end game would look like and how to really have greater interaction with our shadow council. A big thing that Penny Arcade prides itself on as well is the amount of work we like to do with people who are artists. So I will reach out to a lot of artists who make C-Team content, and we will try to display a lot of their work on the C-Team stream. And then we also have our podcasts that we do, and then we have the larger brand of Acking. So then we have our shows at PAX, and I do all of that coordination as well. So the stage productions are things that I work on about a month and a half to two months before each show. So that's like lighting and stage presence and, you know, building the table. So it's just like acting as a whole just has a lot of small moving parts that make it into the brand that it is. Wow. And so you really, you make the C team happen. Well, I make, I, I, I would say I make it happen with a team. You know, I would not be able to do my job if I didn't have all of the people that work on this. And I, I try to give as much credit because, you know, I, I can't do any of this by myself. You know, we, we have our cast. Um, we have the C team members. We have Jerry and Eric who are absolutely phenomenal writers. We have Josh studio producer. We have the design team and that consists of four people. That's Kiko, Dora, Dave and Gav. And then we have our marketing guy, Patrick. So like it's a, and and, and our engineer Buland, like we have a pretty tight knit team at this point. And season two has really brought that team together. Whereas season one was more of a partnership with Hyper RPG. So I would say it's a it's definitely a teamwork effort. What would you say has maybe surprised you the most? I would say the fan the fan content, the fan response as a whole has just been absolutely phenomenal. It is nothing that I ever thought 
could exist, right? It, we have such a, a positive community. Everyone's so supportive of one another. And that's actually something that I'm still kind of learning how to work with to this day um, as the shadow counselor, because a lot of my stuff is behind the scenes. And so having some of that front-facing work is is a new experience to me. And it's been such a pleasure and such a joy to be a part of this growing community. Even I don't know exactly everything that happens with the community just because it's so widespread now and everyone is, you know, doing, everyone's doing their own stuff now. We have a few um, fan-made groups who are playing their own offshoots of teams and that's pretty amazing. We have dozens of bee stingers. So I think that part has been just absolutely astounding. As you think about uh, your time with the C team and how it's evolved, are there any sort of standout memories that leap out at you or any stories that you have where this is like the craziest thing that has ever happened? Oh my gosh, the craziest thing. Um, honestly, I would say the craziest thing ha- has been the unplugged live show of the C team. I didn't ever anticipate that the C team would be playing on the main stage at, at PAX and much less in costume. And so Danny Hartel, who is just an absolutely phenomenal costumer, put these put, put the C team costumes together and just really brought each character to life. And I was standing backstage and I've produced several of the larger acting shows as well. The West is the only one where everyone is costumed at Unplugged. Watching everyone walk out on stage was an experience I don't think I'll ever forget. And watching the reactions of all of the the C-team members was phenomenal. And then when it ended and everyone came off stage, it was such a... It was a moment that I just, I can't even put into words just because everyone was both relieved and over the moon and they they wanted more, but they were all, you know, in this together. It was one of the craziest experiences. And then um, a lot of the, I guess a good portion of the Shadow Council was at Unplugged at that point. And they all came up to the stage directly after the show and the C team didn't want to leave and go take pictures because they were all so excited about talking to everyone. It was, I, I, I don't know if I can even explain how how neat that experience was. It really makes, gosh, I don't know the these characters that everyone has created really tangible. And then when you're live streaming, sure, there's the chat, but it's different to meet people in person and feel that energy in person. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that was something that the the team really had never experienced on a larger level. And so having that feedback, they were just thriving up on stage and just becoming almost they, they were just becoming their characters. And it was just it was just truly a pleasure to see. My heart is so warmed. <laughs> so for a lot of people getting to produce an actual play D&D game is the dream job. Do you have advice for others looking to enter the the realm of game production? I think firstly my my biggest thing if people want to get into games um it's Firstly, about figuring out what exactly you want to do on games. A lot of people say that they want to be game devs. And um, there are only so many game dev jobs, but there are so many more roles that that happen on a game that are just as important. And so, you know, I'd say figure out what it is that, that brings you joy. Production brings me joy because I get to help 
pe- passionate people create things that they are proud to create. And other people, you know, like being on the design side of things, the engineering side of things, writing. And so just figure out what your niche is and then just put yourself out there. It'll be hard to get into the industry if if you don't put yourself out there and get to know people and get that experience. And honestly, I would say the same thing when it comes to if you want to even just start your own D&D show. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't necessarily have the equipment and I don't necessarily have the performing chops. And it's like, you don't necessarily need the equipment. You can have the janky stuff equipment, but all you should do is just get into the habit of getting out there. Because that's how any project is going to happen is the worst thing that someone can do is say no and and you'll just move on and find find someone else to work with anyway so are there certain skills that you feel like would be really good for people to cultivate i would say the more you can understand about different roles the better or the easier it's going to be to get into production i used to be a video editor so i understand how much time and effort goes into um a lot of the 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 backend work when it comes to creating the actual video content. I understand audio pretty well. I am not super up to date on the equipment. And so that's something that I need to work on. But I would just say, you know, get to know where everyone is coming from and all of the different roles. You know, what are the challenges of being in front of the camera versus what are the challenges to running the computer versus interacting with the community? I just say, I think that understanding where everyone's perspective is will help you and allow for you to to be a better teammate in production. Are there any tips you've learned that anyone producing an actual play live stream should know? It depends on what platform you're using, but I would be very cognizant of who your audience is if you want to start doing a live show. If you wanted to do a podcast, really taking into consideration that people are listening to your voice and to not have cross-table chatter or that you want to have as clear as audio as possible and, you know, editing in intros and, you know, podcasts and YouTube content allow for you to edit. Whereas live shows, you know, there are um, a few more moving pieces and technical difficulties will happen for sure. And you just have to learn how to roll with it. And then it's not about having the biggest or most robust back end. It's, it's about getting on there and having a good time, because if you're not having a good time, then the audience will know. If you are getting up there and enjoying your time and having fun, then your audience will likely have fun with you. And it might take a little bit to build that audience, but you know, that's not necessarily even the point of it, right? And it will build, it will grow uh, as long as you maintain a schedule and you are consistent. So a lot of it doesn't necessarily even have to do with the technical side of things. It's all about how you approach it in front of the camera and how you communicate with your community because the community is such a big part of it as well. Um, So as we wind down, uh, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so the C-team just came back from the season two break of Plans Within Plans and we are now in the Promise arc. And this arc will last until um, the end of July, but we have some 
fun things planned until then, some fun crossovers coming up. We are also working on a general Akink project that I'm sure Jerry has told the Shadow Council about. And uh, so, yeah, we have a lot of really fun projects in the works. And 2018 is going to be a big year for Akink, the C team as a whole. Exciting. Uh, so if people want to follow you, keep up with what you're doing, uh, with what the C team is doing, uh, how can they do that? You can feel free to follow me on Twitter at Hobbitzes, H-O-B-B-I-T-Z-E-Z. And then if you want to know anything about the C team, just general things, we have uh, a new recap from Chris Straub on uh, our Ack Inc ac-inc.com slash cteam that goes over the entire first part of season two for now. So plans within plans. And then uh, Z Bashu has also been making a lot of recaps for season one, and we still continue to post those. And so these are easy ways to jump on and get introduced and acquainted with what and who the C team is. So I would just say go on to the Ack Inc website and check it all out. And then you can follow Jerry Hawkins at Tycho Brahe on Twitter as well. And you can get all of your C team goodies there. Thanks so much for coming on Beholder to chat with me. Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure to talk with you and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Hetty Rowan is a sociology honor student at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia. Preparing to apply for her PhD, Hetty is writing her thesis on the fandom of critical role, what makes critters so distinct and generous as fans, and how others can cultivate kinder communities. here with Hetty Rowan. And Hetty, I'm so excited to meet you. Uh, and I'm so curious about your project. Glad to be here. Uh, before we talk a little more about your thesis, I want to learn a little bit more about you. Were you a critter first or a gamer first? Oh, a gamer, absolutely. Um, I actually started with online text-based role-play games on IRC when I was 12, which was back in 1994. So I've been doing that for roughly 24 years. I started doing D&D a few years after that. So I think I've been doing D&D for about 15 years maybe. And the critter thing came long after. Uh, what was it about D&D that hooked you? I think it was the fact that I could be around the table with friends and it could be this interactive social activity that we were all laughing and having fun with but at the same time when the dramatic moments happened they really did hook us in so it was like being able to be part of a fantasy world in the safety and comfort of your own home or a friend's home and you'd go on this journey with your friends in a different way than a movie or a, another thing would do for you how did you stumble on critical role then i was in scotland I'd only just arrived. It was during the Edinburgh Festival. I was there on a student exchange. I'd never been out of my own country before. I'd never been away from my friends and family before in this sort of way. And I'd recently had some serious health concerns. So I'd created quite a close-knit community around me back home. So I was on my own and I was feeling rather homesick and lost. So I was on YouTube quite a bit and had finished all the tabletop episodes from Will Wheaton and was just poking around the Geek and Sundry YouTube channel and found the Critical Role episodes. And I went through the first 20 in about five days 
and then was able to join the live stream on episode 20. Oh, that is quite a binge. Yeah, it was quite a binge. I was hooked and I loved the way that they were interacting with the critters in the chat and just the friendly way they were dealing with both the viewers and with each other. It was just a different kind of atmosphere than I'd seen before. Tell me a little bit about your getting involved with the Critter community, the impact that Critical Role had on your life. I basically was a bit of a lurker in the chat on Twitch for a long time, just observing what other people would say and and just watching the, the cast interact with chat. But it did inspire me to join my own D&D game in Scotland. That's how I started socializing outside of the university. I started going to a pub every two weeks to join a local game there. So I actually played D&D consistently while I was in Edinburgh and it actually inspired me to get more involved in the critter community, which I did over Facebook more than I did in Twitch. And then when I got home, I basically told my friends that I'd gotten back into D&D and that I was interested in this show. And several of them started to show an interest in playing D&D, some of them who've never played D&D before. So it's become not only a part of my lives, but a, a part of the lives of my friends as well. So how then did this hobby uh, turn into your doing an entire thesis on Critical Role? It was actually just a shot in the dark with my, my supervisor. I went to her and I said, hey, look, I know I've been doing studies on poverty and, and youth and... I've been doing stuff with mentoring disadvantaged students, but I have this thing that I want to do, maybe if if you'll let me, and that is a thesis on how this show online is helping people and saving lives. Um, I'd seen testimony from people through the fan club. Also, uh, the video came out about that time with people saying that, you know, they had not kill themselves basically because the show had given them something to look forward to and and to engage with and I thought that's something you don't see every day I I've never seen another fandom that has had such an impact on people's lives and saved lives in this way so she leapt at it she said absolutely go for it and I've been focusing on the mental health benefits of communities like this and and the fact that the critter community is so unique in how it supports its members the work they do with donating to charities just it's it's unusual and it's positive and it deserves to be noticed going in did you have a particular hypothesis or expectations when you started my hypothesis was that when a community is founded in a positive way, the way that the cast has established it is unique. They have been engaging with fans and viewers since day one. They have always been very clear in how they want critters to treat each other with respect and kindness. They've always spoken of mental health issues positively and saying, please seek support. Um, we'll listen, but please seek support because we're not professionals. And that ethos has traveled over to the community and I thought that was interesting because a lot of my observations of fan communities online has been that it's been a bit of a mixed bag. It's been partly trolls, partly fans who are dedicated and then you have the fans who don't like to be called fans 
But critters are unique because they've taken the ethos basically that Matt and the others have put forward and they've taken that forward. They've been involved in charity and, and in supporting each other through the fan club on Facebook and then, of course, they also have the mental health group on Facebook now. I just thought that that's something unique that needs to be explored. So that's basically the core of my hypothesis, that this this could be something that other communities online take note of. What does the research process look like for a project like this? I have a limitation as to how many interviews I'm allowed to do through the ethics at my university. So at the moment, we're looking between eight and 10 spread across certain countries. I'm limited in my parameters to Western-based countries due to the cultural similarities. So I'm looking at two participants from the United States, two from Australia or New Zealand, uh, two from the UK, and then I might be able to extend that to two from Canada as well. The majority of it will be research-based in terms of current theories but unfortunately the other part of it is that not and nobody's really doing research in this area so I'm basically out on a limb doing something that's not been done before and there's a lot of interest in that but it basically means that I'm using bits of psychology and sociology which is my major my field and these interviews uh, to basically put together a new kind of research. Wow that is really cool. (laughs) So since this type of study is so new, are there other challenges that you're coming up against that you need to figure out? Mostly it's been the theoretical framework that I've, I've used as the support for the thesis itself. I was able to find one good uh, resource talking about this new form of escapism, but unfortunately he's not an academic writer. He's a media consultant from the UK. So he, he's not technically allowed. So I'm having to find other sources to explain this new type of escapism that people aren't really aware of. The other research that I'm using is stuff that's only come out in the last couple of years, talking about different kinds of fandoms, such as spermatic fandom, which is based on uh, fans who will actually crowdfund things based on the celebrities who put out the word that they would like to do certain projects. So I'm actually looking at that in, in more of a charitable formation for critters, which is, again, a new thing. It hasn't been done, so I'm actually creating my own term for that. So critters will have created their their own sociological term that will go into research now. Have you established the term? Or are you still figuring out what you want to call it? Charitable digigratis is the term. It was based off the work of another researcher in the United States whose name, unfortunately, I forget off the top of my head. But he wrote on digigratis and spermatic fandoms. And digigratis is basically the action of giving money online um, as a form of of support or donating towards something in in crowdfunding. So I will be using that as a platform for charitable digigratis, which, as I've said, does not exist in sociological research yet. And that is because critters have this unique way of crowdfunding events through Critical Role through Geek and Sundry, both through the live charitable events, but also just as part of the critter gifting process of Critmas, um, which is unique, and I've not seen that in other fandoms. We have similarities with the Star Wars fandoms with the charities 
that they have uh, usually at conventions walking around uh, doing donations. But there has not been a fandom that I'm aware of anywhere in the world that has given so much so consistently through this form of online crowdfunding, apart from perhaps uh, Patrick Rothfuss's uh, World Builders organisation, which Geek and Sundry and Critical Role both support. So this is a whole new ballgame, sociologically speaking, and for it to come out of fandom is unique. So the critters have some serious weight sociologically and socially to their name by doing this. What do you think it is that sets the critters apart that makes them so giving? There is a human understanding of each other. They have a kindness and a generosity of spirit that, which may in, it may be in other fandoms. I've certainly witnessed it through the Star Wars fandom, through the charities and things that I've seen them do. But... The critters go above and beyond. They just have this heart to them. They want to give, they want to support things, they want to support each other. They're encouraged by the cast to be kind and generous to each other, not so much in terms of donating, but just being there for each other, being kind to each other on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, in the Twitch chat. And that translates into the real world. I've had an experience personally at the convention uh, in Brisbane, which Laura and Travis recently uh, attended. I collapsed on the last day. Um, unbeknownst to me, I have <laughs> reactive hypoglycemia and I was very, very sick. I stopped being able to walk and talk properly. It was the first time it had ever happened to me in a public sphere. And the critters let to the help. I had several of them handing me drinks. One of them went for the ambulance people. Uh, they just reacted phenomenally. And I've not seen that level of kindness and connectivity in people who've only just met. These are people who I'd only known for a couple of days and they just went above and beyond. And I think that sort of behavior, that sort of ethos, that sort of heart is the true core of the critter community. So I know that you're just you're in the selection process right now for those you'll you're interviewing. But in what you've done for your thesis so far, has anything come up that has surprised you or are there any stories that stand out in your mind? I mean, the most surprising stories, the, the thing that got me started was the video that Geek and Sundry released. I had a general understanding that it had had some impacts uh, as a show, that people had gotten some benefits, that the community was doing well, but I had no idea that people had actually decided that life was worth living just to see the next episode, that uh, there was one particular story of a young man whose name I don't know because it was all anonymous, who spoke of the fact that he had set a, a date to commit suicide and how he had gotten involved watching Critical Role before that date and how that date had come and gone without his notice because he had been so invested in the show and its storyline. And I think that speaks not only to the way that Matthew and the others tell stories, but the fact that they care about this community radiates through the screen towards us. They interact with us by speaking to us. They react on Twitter. They're very engaged with the critter community. And that's a, a new way of interacting with a show. 
because you can't interact with a TV show or a movie in this way. You could tweet people who star in, in TV shows and movies, but a lot of the time your voice goes into the void. But I see a consistent amount of posts on Facebook and Twitter going, Senpai noticed me because the Critical Role cast see it and respond. So shifting gears a little bit, you've mentioned that you've been gaming since you were 12 in text-based games. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what your experience as a girl and then woman in gaming has been. Basically, when it started out, I actually remember the internet being switched on. That's (laughs) how old I am. But yes, I remember dial-up starting. I remember going on to IRC. I remember getting into uh, text-based roleplay and basically moving from different server to different server as, as times shifted. And I basically gained my confidence in storytelling and world-building there. I, I role-played for the first couple of years and then I became a world-builder online. And I started running my own channels at around 15 years old. So I was building worlds, running NPCs, uh, and it wasn't just fantasy either. I branched into sort of Vampire the Masquerade, White Wolf sort of fields. I also did post-apocalyptic, mutant stuff, more futuristic sort of AI-based, you know, where does humanity really lie question sort of role plays. Just every kind of genre, basically, that I could get my hands on, I tried and I ran for my groups. And then towards the end of my teens, I was actually homeless. Um, I was living out of my car for several years and I was doing cleaning work just to have a few hours online. You know, I I would go to an internet cafe in, I was living in Sydney at the time, and just do cleaning the bathrooms around closing and they would give me an hour or two to just hop online. I was doing other work obviously as well, but that time was a real help for me because being homeless makes you really vulnerable. It induces anxiety and depression and I was assaulted several times, but I always had this mentality of just keep moving forward because it's going to get better if I keep working. So I used that time in those fantasy worlds online to imagine a better life for myself. And over a couple of years, I managed to do that. I was able to get into university again at 21 uh, through mature age entry in Australia, um, which was a thing back when I was 21. And (laughs) I'm not sure it exists anymore. It it let me get a grasp in, in university and start building my academic confidence because I hadn't finished high school because of the fact that I was homeless. And unfortunately I had some other interruptions between now and then with other assaults and just general health issues. I basically started doing RPG as a balance to my life because with health issues I was somewhat isolated. I was making more friends online than I was in the real world simply because it was so difficult to balance social things when you are so sick. As I got better, I returned to university and I started the undergraduate program that I'm now doing the end thesis of. And that propelled me places that I never thought I'd go, like Japan and Scotland. Um, And it's financially supported me and made my life so much better. But 
being a gamer throughout that is what saved my emotional sanity. I've got no no doubts whatsoever that being a gamer saved my life on more than one occasion throughout the years. Absolutely sure of it. And that's why I resonate with the critters who speak to the fact that critical role has saved their lives because I know the power of that personally. And I've found that the change through the years is it hasn't it's gone from being a survival mechanism for me, an escape for me, to being something where I can pull my creativity because I have been writing since I was five years old. I've been in that imaginary landscape of your own different worlds with your own characters for most of my life. D&D roleplay games, they give me the opportunity to open those worlds up to the people around me, whether those people are strangers I've never met on the internet or they're my close friends. Hearing Hattie, your story of perseverance and how you've turned this hobby into a force of good and, my goodness, just you're a trailblazer in the research that you're doing. It's just... You are so, so inspiring. Thank you. I, I hope that my story can inspire others to find strength in themselves and, and go forward and do what it is that they love in life. Life is unpredictable. A lot of people say life is short, but that doesn't take into the account of people who survive these things. Um, who have to deal with the fallout and what they do with their lives, where they find hope, where they find joy, where they find connection and community after the fact. And the Critter community is a loving, safe space of like-minded people who love the same things, who may have differences of politics or religion, but they respect each other and they treat each other with a high level of human decency and kindness. And that's remarkable in a time in the world where we've got so many things that are violent and negative and hurtful, especially in online spaces. And I truly hope that my story might just cause even just one critter out there to go, hey, maybe I should open up and talk to another critter about what I'm going through and not be alone. Um, so, Hattie, if people uh, listening to this interview want to keep up to date on your research, uh, learn more about it, are there ways for them to do that? I do have a website, uh, website at the moment that's kind of lapsed in my attention because I've been so involved in the thesis research, but it is called dndstudy.com. Otherwise, people can find me in the Critical Role fan club under my name. I'm also in the mental health group, though that discussion is closed and it's for those particular reasons. So people can message me on Facebook if they'd like to. I'm also on Twitter under the handle at Ludologeek, L-U-D-O-L-O-G-E-E-K. I will be publishing the thesis when it's done through the D&D study uh, website. I'll also be putting links up in the fan club for critters who'd like to see it. And I also will be sending a copy in the real world to the cast to show them how much we appreciate them. And I am currently 
thinking of once it's done, looking at how much space I have in the back of the book and opening it up for critters to make small statements, only a couple of sentences each, because there's going to be a lot of them. (laughs) What a world we live in that D&D is something we get to study and in this context and with this depth. If any critters are listening, less than three, you guys, you are my critter fam. I love you. Shauna Nakasone is the co-host of Waffle Talk, the Dice Camera Action Reaction Show that airs on PowerScore RPG's Twitch every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific, or whenever DCA is over. She also plays in a number of live streamed games, including Rise of the Dark Side along with Kayla. Shauna also is a transgender woman, and identity Dungeons & Dragons helped her realize fully and confidently. I sat there at the gaming table, looking around nervously while shuffling my character sheet in my hands. It was the first session of a new D&D campaign, and the other players had already begun the process of introducing both themselves and their player characters. When it eventually became my turn, I perhaps too sheepishly said, My name is Sean, and I'm playing Lyra. She is a human avenger of Ilmater. She... Looking back, that seemingly unimportant declaration was the first of many steps involving D&D that helped me explore and embrace my identity as a trans woman. Growing up, I was a painfully shy geeky boy. I was more on the sci-fi side of things like Star Wars, Star Trek, and Transformers rather than the fantasy side, but even then, there were things that showed I was maybe not embracing the gender role I was given. I felt more comfortable hanging out with my female friends rather than my male friends, and of those aforementioned entertainment properties, I actually identified way more with the usually lone female lead, which was sometimes frustrating as they were often sidelined in favor of the other male heroes, and in the case of finding toys were extremely hard to find. I would also, if given the choice in my video games, would choose a female avatar, oblivious to any deeper meaning that that would suggest. Sadly, D&D did not come into the equation until much later in life. Friends had been trying off and on to get me to play for years, but finally, my friend Steve was able to get me to sit down for a session. It also definitely helped that my interest had been sparked by the newly released Acquisitions Inc. podcast. For that first session, I played it pretty safe, like probably a lot of people do their first session. I rolled a half-elf paladin named Sigbert. He was very much the upstanding Captain America hero type. Lawful good through and through. I was hooked by the game after that first session, but even after multiple sessions and months of play with Sigbert, it always felt at arm's length and I didn't necessarily have that emotional investment that I've seen in so many players. As people that know me know that character stuff is what I played D&D for and not having that was admittedly frustrating. But one day we got an invitation to play in an organized play group and decided to put the campaign on hold and roll up new characters and I wanted to try something new. I wanted to make a character like the heroines I connected with in fiction, even going with the name Lyra. 
directly inspired by the main character of one of my favorite books, The Golden Compass. I guess I ended up putting more of myself to that character than I initially realized. Lyra was a quiet, shy, yet capable young woman. Unsure of her place in the party and the world in general, even though that she was quiet, she tried her best to support and protect the party as much as she could. That organized playgroup was made of a few friends and a few people I've never met before. I admit I was nervous about playing a female PC for the first time with people I didn't know. I knew that there was always a possibility it could end negatively, opening me up to ridicule, both uh, in-game and out. Thankfully, to my relief, when I finally introduced Lyra to the group, there was no ridicule, no bad reactions ever came. Just accepted as normal and we continued to play organized play without that becoming ever an issue. While playing Lyra, I did feel different than I did playing with my male characters. I did feel that investment and that connection, even though it wasn't big as first and it wasn't as dramatic as everything fit into place and I embraced my identity as a woman. But it felt like a comfortable set of clothes that I didn't know I had. Throughout that time, I became more aware of my identity, feeling more comfortable to explore aspects of myself in a protective and supportive environment that playing D&D with your friends brings. And I continued playing with that organized play group as we eventually moved on to other campaigns, other games. Those players that I was so nervous about playing with at first became some of my best and most trusted friends. In fact, that group was the first place I felt comfortable enough to incorporate skirts and more feminine dress into my appearance. But when the time came to finally move on from playing Lyra, I excitedly took every opportunity to explore other aspects of myself in play. I was the amoral sorceress Adriana, the haunted highborn ranger Maddie, the feral warlock tiefling pigeon, and most surprisingly, the extravagant mean girl bard Fio. By embodying those characters for a few hours once a week, not only had I become more confident in myself and my increasingly visible identity as a woman, I had become incredibly invested and could not wait week to week to play in our sessions. It was a wonderful feeling, even when things outside the table were not as wonderful. But eventually, there came to be a period of time where there were no games due to the mundane reasons of scheduling and time. It hit me hard, honestly, not just for the fact of not playing in the game, but the game and that group was where I could be myself the most. I hadn't actually uh, outright stated that I was trans to them, but I, yeah, I can be overly cautious and a little wishy-washy about those things. But that environment allowed me to be myself more than pretty much any other place in my life. The idea of presenting visibly as a woman in any other setting other than a table, for me, a very extremely shy, nervous person, was terrifying. But it came to the point where I could not limit myself to be who I was for no time or for few hours 
once a week. And so I made an effort to be more assertive about my identity. I decided to be more confident in my being trans online, still being cautious. I also started interacting more with the online D&D community and those surrounding the streaming campaigns I love so much. To my surprise, those online communities ended up being as supportive and as comfortable as my home table did. Through a series of events, I even started playing in stream games, which considering how dreadfully shy I can be was something I didn't even consider doing ever. I then came to realize that all the things that I did surrounding D&D were actually a lot of practice for me being who I am. The voice that I use now is not actually my default voice, but a toned down version of the voice that I use to RP at the table. The precision detail painting that I use for painting all my minis actually came in handy for detail work of painting nails and doing eye makeup. And doing several cosplay of D&D characters allowed me to break my apprehension for going out and shopping for women's clothes. But I am incredibly thankful for what my tabletop life has given me. It gave me the support of great friends and a safe space to practice and embrace my identity, which for someone as timid as me was extremely valuable. I don't know where I'd be without it. I know I have a lot left to go. I'm still really cautious and am not 100% comfortable to be out there in all my facets of life, but I know I can do it. I spent so much time trying to embody the strength of my women player characters that it's actually helping me become one myself. If you want to catch Shauna's next actual play appearance, or just see what she's up to, follow her at Flying Sierras on Twitter. That's F-L-Y-I-N-G-S-C-I-U-R-U-S. Thank you, Shauna, Hetty, Alyssa, Kayla, and Hadil for sharing your stories with Behold Her. And thank you, dear listeners, for your ears and all your kind words and reviews on Twitter, iTunes, and elsewhere. Those stars and reviews help get Behold Her out there, so I really, really appreciate it. Behold Her will be back in June, celebrating women community managers. They help make our hobbies so much better. Sometimes the job is great. Sometimes it's not. Either way, I can't wait to share their stories with you. See you then.